Well, you ready for more of Esther? Oh, good. Well, I hope you've enjoyed the series. I, I have. Uh, it's been encouraging to read through. It's been very challenging as well, and I trust it has for you too. So if you have your Bibles and you want to turn to Esther chapter 6, you may, or if you have a device or something along those lines, and also have um, the Scripture and the translation that we're using. Sometimes it's a little easier to, to follow along, but by all means, feel free to, to use your own as well. Untying the knots is where we're going this morning. So um, some people last week uh, kept repeating the joke that I used. I heard a couple people say, I used that again in the week. And some people are like, that was a bad joke. And then some people are like, really funny and so forth. But um, So I don't want to overuse jokes, but I thought, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start with another one just because it helps me lead into this one. So this is a little bit longer. And this one I'm more expecting at the end, like, Oh, kind of, uh, or whatever. So here you go. Now that, that is always a great way to start out a joke. But a priest, a minister, and a rabbi. You know that's always a good way to start, right? Okay. So a priest, a minister, and a rabbi want to see who is the best at his job. So each one goes into the woods, finds a bear, and attempts to convert it. Later, they all get together, and the priest begins, When I found the bear, I read him from the catechism and sprinkled him with holy water, and next week is his first communion. All right, you know, there's success there. So, and the other one said, I found a bear by the stream, says the minister, and preached God's holy word, and the bear was so mesmerized that he let me baptize him. All right, that's good, that's good. And then they both look at the rabbi who is lying on a gurney in a body cast, and looking back, he says, maybe I shouldn't have started with circumcision. So, there you go. So, got a couple of good ones, and a couple of ones like, no, that's not. Um... But I started with that one because, because uh, sometimes it feels like you're on a gurney in life, and uh, maybe not for that reason, but for other reasons. And, and sometimes throughout the week, you come to church feeling like you came in on a gurney because the week's been hard. The week's been difficult. And, uh, and that may be your, your case today where you feel like your life is all messed up, it's all in knots, there's problems with it. Uh, it could be knots that you've created on your own by decisions that you've made. It could be knots that have been created for you. It could be a lot of different reasons, but you might feel like your, your life is just a, a mess. Does God have power over that? And I think all of us would say, yeah, absolutely, God has power over that. But we still feel this, this emotion at times, like where is God? We, we have this sense, uh, we don't even know how to necessarily describe it, what is that sense when it's like, I call out to God, I cry out to God, and I don't always hear His voice. The things that I, I hope would happen the way I pray for those things, I, you know, we're told in James 5.16, the prayer of a righteous man accomplishes much. And so you say, well, okay, I've prayed this prayer, I've poured out my heart to God, I've tried to do what is right and all these things, and yet still life doesn't always go the way you hope it would go. And so you feel like maybe your life is just kind of tied up in knots at time. Well, we know that we have a God who is strong enough to untie the knots. But there's still a lingering question as you go through as to why sometimes he doesn't. So we're going to take a look at that as we go through. And one of the things that I think is just really encouraging throughout this life as we go through difficult times like this where we're asking God, like, hey, how come life is so messy? Is that we have a church body to be with. And so like I challenged you last week, I want to continue to challenge through the end of this year that we're reaching out to each other and encouraging each other throughout the week. 
inviting each other for dinner, going to each other, you know, with each other out to coffee, or definitely in a life group and trying to encourage one another. Those are really important things, praying with each other, praying for each other, checking up on each other with text or phone calls or emails or Facebook messaging or whatever you want to use. It's a great way to encourage one another. That's what we need to be doing in the body of Christ. Um, so we have this, this life to live together with one another and to encourage one another and build each other up and to, to really explore this awesome God who created us and gave us life. And so we're going to be looking at this. This is our big idea. There's no knot too difficult for God to untie. I believe that with all my heart. Okay? Maybe you do too. And I think you're going to see that here in this text as we go through it in chapter 6. In fact, chapter 6 of Esther may be the text that demonstrates God's providence more than any other chapter in Esther. Okay? And so he's going to, to deal with this king and this Haman and, and Esther and all those different people, Mordecai, and, and God is working behind the scenes and he's, he's working on the story and he twists the story a little bit this week and you begin to see how he's always working in the background. And in this particular case, he unties a knot for them. There's no knot too difficult for God to untie. And, uh, and I think that's true. But you're still kind of left with a question, and I'm going to deal with that as we get to the end. So let's start off with this first point. God stirs powerful kings. You see it here in this text. Uh, You see it as a promise. It's mentioned in Scripture in Proverbs 21, verse 1. It says, a king's heart is like channeled water in the Lord's hand. Okay, There's no heart out there of a king that God cannot control or doesn't have power over. He directs wherever he chooses. Now, in God's sovereign plan, in His providence, and this is something that I don't always understand and fully grasp, but God allows for free will, but yet still has sovereign control and power over everything. And those are two concepts that I think the Bible talks about, and from our point of view, they almost seem to kind of contradict, but from God's point of view, they're able to run parallel and work together. And so we have to kind of accept those things and trust those things by faith. Those are those parts of God that, that are beyond our limited understanding of who He is. We try to understand it, and we've got different ways that maybe we, we explain it and try to explain it. But, but in reality, it's a difficult concept to understand how we have a perfect, sovereign, powerful God, but yet we have man who has free will and has the choice to sin and disobey. Okay? But we also know we have times like this where God can channel and does in, in times channel the heart of people. And he talks about that with Pharaoh in the Old Testament. Powerful, the most powerful man on the earth at that time. He was able to take Pharaoh's heart and do with it what he wanted. And here with the king Ahasuerus, he does the same thing. So the king in chapter 6 verse 1 was not able to sleep had one of those sleepless nights. That night, sleep escaped the king, so he ordered the book recording daily events to be brought and read to the king. If you are not a historian or you don't like to read history, you are in good company here. Okay? Apparently, in order to put the king to sleep, he would have the records and history come out and read to him. So there you go. All right? Um, for whatever reason, this maybe calmed him or bored him, I don't know. But in any way, he, he had the records brought to him and they started to read them. And they found the written report of how Mordecai had informed on Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the entrance when they planned to assassinate King Ahasuerus. The king inquired, what honor and special recognition 
have been given for Mordecai for this act. Now, there's something that's happening here that is unusual in, in Persia. Typically, when someone does something as great as Mordecai, where he reported to the king, hey, there's a plan to assassinate you, once the king found out about that, he would honor Mordecai right away. For whatever reason, he didn't. Now, we call that providence. Five years beforehand, this event took place. But God chose to wait to have the king honor him until this moment. So you see here God working in the background, and for whatever reason, um, nothing had been done for Mordecai. And so that's what goes on to talk about. He says, the king's personal attendants replied, nothing has been done for him. Five years ago, this happened. He just happens to not be sleeping on a night. Haman is going to come in and ask for Mordecai's death or in the morning. He doesn't have, he's not sleeping, and so he has this, this record read to him. And as the record is read, oh, Mordecai comes back up. Has anything been done to him? No, even though we do that right away normally, this time it didn't happen. Oh, okay, well, the king starts to think, well, we should probably do something for Mordecai. So God's preparing his heart and his mind right here with him not sleeping and the record being you know, read and all that kind of stuff. God's preparing his heart and his mind to do something great for Mordecai. That's God at work in the background. So then you begin to see as we go forward that God spins the story. Up to this point, we have Haman, just to give you a little bit of the history, if if you're just kind of joining us or or unfamiliar with the story of Esther. Up to this point, this guy named Haman is wanting to kill all the Jews, and so he comes up with this great idea of how he can destroy all the Jews, gets the king to sign off of it, even though I think this text maybe points out the king didn't even know that he was actually signing to kill the Jews at this point. So he's, he's, he gets him to, to kill the Jews or sign off on killing the Jews. It hasn't happened yet. He's second in command. He's been invited to the queen's banquet. All these great things are happening for Haman in the story. And Haman's feeling pretty good about his position and, and, and his relationship with the king and with the queen and all the people who are in power. So he's feeling pretty good about himself. In fact, he feels so good about himself, he shows probably his greatest moment of pride in these next few sentences. So let's take a look at it. First of all, Psalm 34, 16 points out a simple principle. The face of the Lord is set against those who do what is evil. And in this story, you're going to see that God is set out against Haman, and he's going to turn the table, so to speak. Verse 4 says, the king asked, who is in the court? Now, Haman was just entering the outer court of the palace to ask the king to hang Mordecai on the gallows. Okay, now he had some built the day before, okay, or that night before. So he'd probably been spending, you know, staying up all night building this. So he had prepared all these, comes in, he wants to ask the king to do this. The king's attendants answered and said, Haman is there standing in the courts. Okay, the king didn't know why Haman was there at this point, so he says, have him entered. And Haman doesn't come in and just start talking right away. So the king ordered Haman, and Haman entered, excuse me, and the king asked, what should be done for the man the king wants to honor? Now, put yourself in Haman's shoes. You're coming in, you're going to ask the king something. Hey, this is great, I got this idea. I just built the, stayed up all night long. I built these gallows. I'm going to hang Mordecai. But you don't get a chance to do that because right when you come in, the king says, what should be done for the man the king wants to honor? I don't know what your response would be there, but read what Haman's response was. Haman thought to himself, well, who 
is it the king would want to honor more than me? Right? He had gotten to a point in his life where he thought he was the cream of the crop, the cat's meow, I don't know, whatever kind of phrase you want to put in there, right? He he thought he was, he was the best. And who in the kingdom would would king want to honor more than this great guy, King Ham? I mean, he's been invited to the queen's banquet. So, he comes up with this great plan. Haman told the king, for the man the king wants to honor will have to bring a royal garment that the king himself has worn. Okay, don't make it special tailored. It's got to be one that the king has worn. And a horse the king himself has ridden, okay, which has a royal crown on its head, most likely um, the, the hair, the mane on the, the uh, horse would have been done up well rather than an actual crown, but maybe an actual crown. It's not quite sure. Then he says, put the garment and the horse under the charge of one of the king's most noble officials and have them clothe the man the king wants to honor, parade him on the horse through the city square and proclaim before him, as if none of that's enough, this is what is done for the man the king wants to honor. That's pretty nice. And what he's actually saying here is, let him be king for a day in the people's eyes. Parade him around in the public, give him everything the king has to do, and let him be king for the day. What an honor for someone like Haman. That's what he liked. So God takes this story, everything's going in Haman's direction. Right up to this moment, everything's going in the direction that Haman wants. However, God has already begun to spin the story. And that's what you read about when you move forward and look at how God stuns the proudest of hearts. Because you can be going along thinking everything's going your way, and just like that, God changes gears on you. We're told in Proverbs 3.34, he mocks those who mock but gives grace to the humble. And we're reminded here in this story as you go forward that those who deny God, we still want to love and care for and reach out to them and give them the gospel. But if they go to the point where they die without knowing Christ, mocking Him, rejecting Him, then they too will be rejected by God. But he gives grace to the humble that accept Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior and call upon His name. He gives grace to those. If only Haman would have learned this, then these following things would not have happened. The king told Haman, hurry and do just as you proposed. And you could probably see this, Haman's turning like, yes. Take a garment and a horse for Mordecai, the Jew. Could you imagine how you would have felt at that moment if you were Haman? There's a couple things pointed out here I think that are, are, are worth noting, and that is, first of all, he notices, or he says, Mordecai the Jew. I think this points to some evidence that the king of Hazaras didn't know that the edict that he sent out was for the Jews. If you go back and you look at the text, you'll notice it's very carefully worded there that uh, as Haman came and presented his case to, to the king, that he wanted to get rid of a sect or a group of people that opposed the king. And the king never asked who those were, at least not in the text. The king just signed off and said, I trust you, Haman, go out, write this decree, send it out there. If he would have known, then he probably would have thought, hey, I got this guy named Mordecai. There's other people I know 
poor Jews that we probably don't want to wipe out. Are you sure about that? But he didn't, it seemed like he didn't check into it, which maybe demonstrates the king, you know, put a little too much trust in some of his other guys like Haman. But here he says, take this and do it to Mordecai the Jew who is sitting at the king's gate and do not leave out anything you have suggested. So he's going to be the noble. Not only has he just planned this, this great parade for, for Mordecai, he's the one that gets to lead him around. And he's the one that gets to proclaim. Look at, go on with the story. The story's great. So Haman took the garment and the horse. He clothed Mordecai. So he's going through this whole thing, right? Bring the clothes in, put them on, Mordecai. What was he thinking? Parade him through the city square, crying out before him, this, you could probably, I don't know if he cried out. It'd probably be like, this is what's done for the men. Well, that's the way he probably felt anyhow. This is what's done for the man the king wants to honor. And probably in his mind, he's still thinking, I still want to hang him on the gallows. Right? Then Mordecai returned to the king's gate, but Haman hurried off for home, mournful and with his head covered, because he realized that the table had turned. Haman told his wife Zeresh and all the friends everything that had happened, and his advisors and his wife Zeresh said to him, Since Mordecai is Jewish, and you have begun to fall before him, you won't overcome him because your downfall is certain. It's a bit of a prophecy that takes place here, but what they're doing is going back in history and they're saying, listen, God has always been with the Jewish people. And we know the stories. We know the stories of how they escaped out of Egypt. And we know the story of the crossing of the Red Sea. And we know how God always came in and rescued them when they fell away and then they repented and turned back. God was always there and was faithful to help the Jews. Now you personally went to attack the Jews and God is dealing with you. While they were still speaking with him, the king's eunuchs arrived and rushed Haman to the banquet Esther had prepared. Now, it's uncertain as to what, as we end this chapter, what Haman might have been thinking. It could have been like, oh, I do not want to go. Or it could, this could have been, for him at this moment, the good side, the good part of the day. He's like, oh, well, at least I have a banquet to go to which we're going to find out what happens at that banquet because the table continues to turn and that's where his judgment is finally issued on him. So in chapter 6, what we see as you move through it is a guy who thought the king wanted to honor him more than any other person to a guy who the king doesn't know yet, but a guy who realizes that he's in big trouble. And who thought he himself had tied a knot so great, so strong, so wonderful that these Jews were finally going to get killed and and he was going to be rid of them because he hated them so much that eventually God begins to unravel this knot that he had tied up. And Mordecai, I'm sure, and Esther had probably heard about this as well and begun to say, look, God is responding. And it could be the very thing that Esther needed to finally have the courage to do the last final speech that she needed to give to the king. Because isn't it amazing when you see God at work that you're encouraged? When you start to see how God puts the pieces together, you go, oh, that's where he is. Esther would have heard about this story somewhere along the way. 
And she, I think she would have been encouraged by it and possibly given her that extra push that she needed. There is no knot too difficult for God to untie. So a question comes up, and I posed it at the beginning. I want to definitely dig into it here at the end. And that is the question of, yes, I believe there is no knot too difficult for God to untie. I, I know that. I know in my own life it can get messy. I know it can be difficult. I know that people out there could be persecuting, or I could have messed up and made some poor choices, and it could have just tied this gnarly terrible mess. Does God have power over it? Yes, He does. Does He always use it? That's a good question. In fact, you might ask the question, why doesn't God untie every knot and make life a little easier for all of us? You ever ask a question like that? In fact, you might have somebody ask you this question. So you're a Christian. Do you believe that God is sovereign and in control and he's powerful and all of that? And you would say yes. And then they'll say, well, if God's that, do you believe he's loving? Yes, I believe he's loving. Okay, well, if you believe God is powerful and you believe that he's loving, then why do all these bad things happen? Right? And our answer to all of that is satisfies some and doesn't satisfy other, that God does allow for us to have freedom. How many of you want your freedom taken away from you? We live in in America, right? It's great. We don't want freedom taken away from us. How many of you would, if God were to come down and say, okay, you have no more choices, taking them away. Is that what you want in life? We don't want our freedom taken away, but we want all the bad things to go away. Yet in our freedom, we make poor choices. In our freedom, we choose to sin. In our freedom, we choose to disobey God. And it's because of a sinful world that we live in that all these bad things happen. Because we live with selfish people. We've got, what, over 7 billion people on the face of the earth? That's a lot of different decisions, a lot of different people doing their own thing. So God allows for that to happen because he's not going to micromanage or control us or control every single decision that we make, yet he's still sovereign in the midst of it all and still has providence in the midst of it all. So why doesn't God untie every knot and make life a little easier for us? Because really the only answer to that is if God did, we would have no choice. He would take our freedom away. It's the only way to do it. Now some people could say, well, that's fine. Take my freedom away and clean up the mess. We say that, and maybe if we were just robots, that would be okay. We wouldn't know better. But God decided in his wisdom to give us a free choice and to create us in his image. And when we're created in his image, we have a personality and we have free choice. So, what about hard times? Here's some lessons that we can learn from hard times. I think these are really important for all of us to remember. And I could give you 10 or 20 of them throughout Scripture. I'm just going to give you three right now. And maybe you have some as well that you can add. You can share in your life group and those types of things as you move forward this week. First one, God allows hard times to help us grow. The reality is if life was comfortable, you and I probably wouldn't grow very much. We'd be really happy where we're at. You know? And if we didn't have these hard times that kind of help shape and mold us and push us along, we would just be content right where we are. 
And so God uses hard times. God allows hard times to help us grow. Here's a passage for us, James 1, 2 through 4. It says, Consider it a great joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you experience various trials, because you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its full effect, so that you may be mature and complete and lacking nothing. Hard times helps people grow to maturity. The idea of complete is not perfected, but that you are being shaped and molded to the person in the image of Jesus Christ, the one that God is shaping and molding us to become like. And he has a perfect plan for us to be completed in his will and so forth. So he's, he's shaping us in that direction, and he uses hard times to do that. I think all of you would agree, maybe, at least in the 98 percentile, we'll put it up that high, that those who have gone through difficult times and have continued in their faith and have grown are some people that you respect the most in the Christian faith. You look at the storms that they have weathered, and you realize that even though they have gone through the difficult times, they have clung to their faith in Christ. If you were to visit a shipyard where you go out and see the Navy ships and you were to see all the different ships out there, what are the ones that have the best stories? It's not the brand new ship that just came off the line, even though we might be attracted to that and go see all the technology that's in it. But it's the ship usually off to the side that's falling apart and about to go into the water that has some of the greatest stories because they've lived through the battles. Right? And it's the ones in our faith who have lived through some of the biggest battles that have the greatest testimonies and stories to share of how they continue to have faith in this awesome God. And so sometimes hard times come our way just so we can grow and mature and even be a better witness for others. Well, God allows hard times to remind us of future hope as well. Okay? He, rem- he allows these hard times to remind us of our future hope as well. Romans eight twenty three to 24 says, Not only that, but we ourselves who have the Spirit as the first fruits, we also groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for adoption, the redemption of our bodies. Now in this hope we were saved, but the hope that is seen is not hope, because who hopes for what he sees? We, uh, at home, we kind of joke a little bit. My kids and I joke a little bit. I, I tell them, they talk about future, retirement, some things like that. And I just say, hey, my retirement plan, my retirement plan is heaven. If God calls me home, you know, 65, goes to heaven, hey, I'm okay with that. And they're like, Dad, come on, don't talk like that. I, I have responsibilities. I don't want to leave my kids. I don't want to leave my wife. I don't want to leave any of those people because I have responsibilities. I love them. I care for them. I want to watch them grow up and all that. At the same time, when God says, it's time to come home, what a glorious day that will be. To go and see your Savior face to face, to be in heaven, what a glorious day that will be. We used to, a lot of churches used to sing about those. We used to, there's hymns out there that talk about the the future and the, the day when we get to see Jesus face to face. Oh, what a day that'll be. How glorious it'll be. How wonderful it'll be. It's true. It's true. How awesome that'll be. People, some people are afraid of dying. You know, again, I, I'm afraid of, 
of my children's future and making sure that there's things like that. Those are all worldly things, yet they're still real, right? We, we have that responsibility and making sure they're all ready and, and all of that. Um, but man, this is the hope. And sometimes hard times remind us of that. We start going through life and things are going well and we think, hey, this is so bad here. But hard times remind us of the future hope we have in Christ. What a day that will be when we see him face to face. The third one, God allows hard times to reveal his power and keep us humble. Out of 2 Corinthians, verse 12, we read this, or excuse me, chapter 12. It says, Therefore, so I would not exalt myself, a thorn in the flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan to torment me, so that I would not exalt myself. Concerning this, I pleaded with the Lord three times that it would leave me. Now, this is the Apostle Paul talking. He was the one that went out, early church. He started a lot of churches and was out there converting people and starting you know, new, new works all over. And so he, he writes this and he says he was given this thorn in the flesh. He doesn't tell us what it was. He just says it's a thorn. It was a pain. It was, it was difficult for him. He pleads for God to take it away. God doesn't do it. So he said to me, God says to him, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is perfected in weakness. Power is perfected in weakness. Therefore, I will most likely, I will most gladly boast all the more about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may reside in me. And he's, he's talking about how this, this thorn in the flesh, these difficulties in life, help him realize that he doesn't have the strength to do it and it keeps him, keeps him humble. Let's go back to that. God allows hard times to reveal his power, his power working in us to give us the strength and then to keep us humble. I know myself well enough to know that when I start to have success, I begin to take too much credit for it. And God doesn't get the credit. And so there are times when God has to humble me. I think we can all probably say that, right? Start patting ourselves on the back. Hey, I made these decisions. And we want to come up with a 10-step program on how I did this and, you know, sell it, make some more money, you know, whatever. We come up with these, these thoughts and, and we start to put our name attached to it and, and we think, this is what I've accomplished in life. That's always a scary place because God can then take and humble us. Hard times help us to keep our eyes fixed on Him and keep ourselves humble. So when you take all three of those, I'll put them back up there for you in case you missed some of them. God allows hard times to help us grow, to remind us of our future hope, and to reveal His power and keep us humble. So while you read a story like Esther chapter 6 and you see, okay, here's God and he's, he's working his plan behind the scenes and it works out for the whole nation of Israel, you might go through life and you say, how come God doesn't do that in all my situations? And there might be some reason for it. There is a reason for it if we believe in a God who's powerful and a God who's sovereign. So I want to give you this kind of as the conclusion. There is no not too difficult for God to entice, so don't hesitate to ask Him for help as you're going through it. And sometimes that, that question or, excuse me, that, that prayer is just, Lord, help me. I don't even know where we're going with this. I don't know why this has happened the way it has. God, I just need help. I've prayed that prayer before because I don't know what else to say. God, please help me. Four words. 
Don't hesitate to ask for help. God does help. Secondly, if God leaves a naughty mess in your life, there may be a reason for it. So keep asking for help and watch for valuable lessons. And you can add to that even more. Go to people in the body of Christ. Talk to them. Tell them what's going on and get that help and support and encouragement from other people. Maybe others will help you point it out as well. But there's a third one, and actually I've been told in the past not to even share this, but I think this is important, and I think churches need to bring it out more. I think pastors need to talk about it more because God's Word talks about it more. And I think if we shy away from it, people miss out on something that's really valuable. As hard times persist, ask God to point out sin in your life that you need to repent of. You may find that to be the lesson. There's not a person in this room that is without sin. Right? In fact, I think as you grow in your faith and as you grow in your knowledge of Christ, you're going to see more and more sin in your life. It's not that you're going to be sinning more. It's that you're going to see it more. And as I begin to see God and His grace and His mercy and how perfect and wonderful He is, I begin to see how far I am from being Christ-like. And there's not a week that goes by in my life, I don't think there's not a week that goes by in my life when I don't see some new sin or effect of sin in my life. I'm like, wow, that's revealing of who I am. Now, there, every day, I, you know, I have the sin flesh, it rears its ugly head, and I'm always struggling with that and all that sort, of, that sort of thing. But there are things that point out, God points out to me on a regular basis, like, yeah, the way you handled that, that was sinful. I'm like, great. You know, I thought I was doing well, right? Sometimes God uses those hard times in life to point out sin that we need to repent of. Don't be afraid to look for that. I think that's why sometimes we shy away from it, because we don't want to admit that we're not perfect. We don't want to admit that we do mess up. But the reality is when we can't admit that we messed up and then we plead and we ask God for forgiveness and He forgives us, there's greater confidence in Christ and His work in our life. Like I said, none of us are perfect, right? We've all got issues that we're dealing with. We've all got these messes in our life. So let's bring it before God. Let's confess it. And let's cling to the cross. Let's cling to the forgiveness that he's given to us. And let's live this life in confidence that he's forgiven us, has given us a new life. And now we serve him, resurrected in this, this great life with Christ. He tells us that we are in a new life. The old is gone and the new has come. We're to clothe ourselves with the righteousness and, and the truth of who Christ is. I'm a mess, but Christ is not. I put him on. I live for him and I serve him. And that's what gives you strength. That's what gives you confidence. That's what gives you courage to live more like Esther. We have to cling to him and not our own strength. Cling to what Christ has done. So as we come to a close and we think through some of these things, here's a response you can ask yourself here. Here's a question you can ask. Do you feel like your life is a naughty mess How are you handling it? With courage in God like Esther or with pride in yourself like Haman? I think my default is to be more like Haman where I look to myself to try to do my thing my way. 
And so my challenge is to, to ask God, am I doing things your way and following your truth? I want to have the kind of courage like Esther. I want to have the kind of courage like Moses. Moses walked in front of Pharaoh and said, let my people go. Knowing that Pharaoh could have been like, take him away, throw him in prison, throw him in that river this time, make sure he doesn't get back out. (laughs) He could have had a lot of different ways to get rid of him. But he goes and he does it. Paul, incredible amount of courage. Peter, obviously Jesus Christ. All had this great courage because their faith was in God, not themselves. That's the kind of people we want to be. That's the kind of people that God gives us in Scripture over and over again. Maybe one of the greatest stories in the Bible that a lot of people turn to is David taking on Goliath. This little guy going out against a giant with just a couple rocks. I don't know what he was thinking the whole way through. But probably pick up that rock. Had, it seems like he had confidence in God just to go out there, take his, his uh, slingshot and throw that rock right at him. That's crazy when you think about it. But he had the courage because his courage was in God. And that's where we get our courage from as well. Not in ourselves, but in him. So answer that question. Think about it for a while. And then this one, read, reread, and memorize. So I've given you quite a few verses to, to read or uh, we've given you some chapters to read through. This is a great one. Romans 8, 28 to 29, you can write it, put it up on your mirror somewhere in your car, have it over, played over and over to you if you want. But here's what it has to say. We know that all things work together for the good of those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. For those he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, so that he would be the firstborn among brothers and sisters. This is a great passage that talks about the providence of God, how God is always working in the background to bring about honor and glory and to conform us into the image of his son. That's what God does. He works in our lives to bring us and conform us into the image of his son. So think about those couple of things here for a few moments, and then we will um, sing our last song. We'll invite you if you'd like to pray afterwards, if you'd like to come and talk to some people here. We'll have them on the wings over here, and you can pray uh, with them. Uh, if there's something throughout the week that you always want to reach out and talk about, I'm more than happy to do that. You can email or text me. I'd love to talk to you about what God's doing in your life. Uh, if you'd like to make a confession of faith, you're like, I think I need to make some things right with God. You have not made a decision to follow Christ, but you want to make a decision to follow Christ, and I'd love to talk to you about that. Being baptized, any of those types of things. So uh, what's God doing in your life? If you want to talk about it, please come and pray with some people. Um, or you can, you can follow up during the week.